Our text this morning is verses 17 through 19 in Matthew 20, and asking that question, why did Jesus come? And the Lord Jesus answers this question very clearly. In our text, he makes a third and a final prediction regarding his death and resurrection. And it's clear, it's striking, there's no mistaking what he says. It's also interesting that it's a, a fuller prediction than those that he has given before in Matthew 16 and Matthew 17. Now, friends, the saving work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, his triumphant resurrection from the dead, they are the very center of the gospel, the true Christian message. One of the key themes that, that runs throughout the scriptures, they are utterly vital. And in these verses, we see again God's glorious grace expressed in the sending of his son to be the suffering savior that each one of us desperately needs. And here the Savior speaks very candidly not only of the fact that he will die and rise again, but he also gives details about the nature of his suffering. He doesn't just say that he will be crucified and rise again, but he speaks of his betrayal. He speaks about how he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, how he'll be condemned to death, how he'll be mocked and scourged and beaten before finally being nailed to a cross. And following that, of course, he will rise again in mighty triumph, but he is clear about what he is going to do. Now, when you ask people about who Jesus is, you get a real variety of responses. And if people acknowledge that he existed at all, the vast majority would say, well, you know, he was just a man, a figure of history. Many would, even if they knew of these things, would see his death on the cross as some unfortunate accident, you know? or that he was just a, an unfortunate victim, or some might even say, you know, he was one of those revolutionaries who, who then met his end at the cross. Lots of opinions. But really, many have no true idea about him. And if they do, they're wrong ideas. The sufferings of the Lord Jesus, we need to understand, were no mistake. There was no accident here. There was no unfortunate set of circumstances which took him to a cross. In fact, they were no surprise to him. There was no shock. In fact, the first recorded words of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels are, I must be about my father's business. The last words before his death, it is finished. He knew what his mission was. He knew why he had come. He knew when that mission had been accomplished. He knew every detail. And knowing all things, he must have understood and endured many times the sufferings before he finally came to them. One puts it like this, how great an aggravation of sufferings foreknowledge is. Yet none of these things moved our Lord. He saw Calvary from a distance all his life through, and yet walked calmly up to it without turning to the right or to the left. Surely there was never sorrow like his sorrow. Never love like his love. And that's what we see in our text. You see, the disciples, they didn't grasp this yet. They were eager to embrace the, the prophecies of Messiah. They liked the idea of glory. They liked the idea of the kingdom. But they didn't understand that before the crown, there must be the cross. The Messiah had to suffer as one says, they, they focused on the lion and they didn't see that they needed the lamb first. 
And so let's ask the question, what was the plan? You look at verses 17 to 18, says Jesus going up to Jerusalem to the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And so as he speaks with his disciples, he says, behold, this is something startling. It's, it's shocking. It's going to be surprising to them, but they're going right to Jerusalem. You know, I think Luke 9.51 is a stunning verse. It says this, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know, the Lord Jesus had that single purpose, that resolute commitment. We know from our time in Matthew that the Lord had left Galilee, he'd gone into Perea, east of the Jordan, was now headed through the city of Jericho and then up to Jerusalem. The cross is very near. In fact, it's only days away. And they'd already begun the, the journey to Jerusalem. Jericho was around 1,000 foot below sea level. Jerusalem around 5,000 foot above. And so this 15-mile trip or so was a steep, long climb. And if you remember from our time in Matthew, the Lord Jesus and the disciples, they weren't alone either. There was a great multitude with them. And so many have been gathered because of the Lord's incredible ministry, his teaching, and also the miracles that he'd done. Many were going to Jerusalem for Passover. And so literally you've got thousands upon thousands with him. And it's on this journey that the Lord calls the disciples aside. He calls them away from the crowd to teach them again. You know, if you were to read the parallel passage in Mark 10, it says that the disciples were amazed at this. And as they followed, they were afraid. You see, the disciples, they knew that in Jerusalem was a, was a whole world of trouble, hostility and danger. You know, not only from their own people, but from the Romans. And so they're fearful of going anywhere near the city. And that word amazed is quite a rare word in Scripture in the original. It means to be taken aback. It means to be unable to understand the situation. They're struggling to make sense of what is going on. You know, they were finding it hard to grasp why Jesus at this point would go to Jerusalem knowing the danger. And Mark also says that Jesus was going before them, and that amazed them too. The Savior was leading the way. He was taking the most vulnerable and dangerous position. You know, the whole scene is incredible. It is so moving because Jesus was heading steadfastly towards the cross on behalf of his disciples and all his people. In Luke 18, 31, it adds the details that when the Lord Jesus takes them aside and says to them about going up to Jerusalem, he also says, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. So he says, we are going to Jerusalem and we're going to fulfill the Scriptures. We're going to fulfill the prophetic plan. And so, friends, you need to see the cross is no accident. The cross is no unfortunate consequence, no shock to the Savior. And those who say that it is, and there are many, have no idea about the message of the Bible. They don't understand the Lord Jesus. They don't understand the Old Testament. He was resolute. He was intentional. He was with purpose. This was the culmination of God's plan to save people like you and me. And, you know, if you were to go back throughout the Old Testament, passage after passage, 
reference after reference predicts all the details of the life, the ministry, the sacrifice, the resurrection, and the triumph of Jesus Christ. You know, for example, Zechariah 9.9 says that he would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It's going to happen in Matthew 21. Zechariah 11.12, that his betrayal would be for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 13.7, that he's going to be deserted by his friends. Psalm 2 says that he will know the fury and the rage of his enemies. Psalm 22 says he's going to be pierced on the cross, that he would cry out in the pain of distress, that his garments would be divided by the casting of lots. Exodus 12, 46 and Psalm 34 says that none of his bones will be broken. Psalm 69, 21 says he's going to be given vinegar to drink. Zechariah 12, 10 says that they'll pierce him with a spear. Psalm 16 says that he's going to rise from the dead. Psalm 110, that he'll ascend into heaven. All those things prophesied in the Old Testament. And in passages like Psalm 22, we read Isaiah 53, you've got explicit description and details of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And so when Jesus says he's going to Jerusalem, he knows all this. He knows what he's going to do. He's on schedule. Everything is in perfect time. You know, friends, you cannot understand the Old Testament without seeing the whole flow of it. All the types, all the symbols, all the pictures, they are pointing to God's deliverer. The Messiah who will come to die for sinners. All of the, the intricate sacrificial system, all the details needed for sacrifice, all laid out to point to Christ. And the Old Testament, it can't be understood without seeing the centrality of the Lord Jesus. You know, as many have said, the scarlet thread woven through Scripture. You know, let me give you some examples. Genesis 3. Go right back to the beginning. You've got the four. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God and sin comes into the world. And what happens? Well, immediately they feel cut off from God. And the first thing that they do is they, they run, they hide themselves. And there's that separation, there's brokenness, there's an estrangement from God because of sin. And they're aware of it. They know that they're naked. But God graciously clothes them with animal skins through the death of an animal, and it shows straight away that there had to be death for the provision of a covering. And so you've got this situation. And so right there, Genesis 3, you've got the beginning of the gospel proclamation that's going to get louder and louder through the Old Testament that sin, guilt, shame, separation from God can only be dealt with and covered by sacrifice. And so it points to the coming ultimate Passover lamb. A little bit further, Genesis 22. You've got another key truth about sacrifice being taught. God gives Abraham a son of promise called Isaac. And Isaac's going to be the seed through whom the Abrahamic promise would be fulfilled and God would give a generation who would number as the sand on the shore, the stars in the heavens. A wonderful promise. But then God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And it seemed to be the sacrifice of all hopes, all dreams and the promises of God to him. But Abraham is faithful. And he's committed to do what God says he trusts the Lord. And Hebrews 11 says that Abraham believed that God would overrule, and if he needed to, he would bring Isaac back from the dead. 
And so they go up the hill of sacrifice known as Mount Moriah. And when they get there, the altar is prepared and Abraham instructs Isaac to get on the altar. And he lifts the knife to sacrifice his own beloved son. Can you imagine? But then God intervenes, stops Abraham. And indeed, he provides and shows that there is a ram in the thicket which will become the sacrifice in place of Isaac. And so Genesis 22, 14 says that Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And so God reveals another mighty truth. Sacrifice is necessary, but God himself is going to provide a substitute. And so the gospel picture is clear. Sin, shame, and guilt can only be dealt with by sacrifice, but God is going to provide the sacrifice. In fact, he'll provide his own son. And then you go into Exodus and you have the ongoing unfolding of God's redemptive plan and Israel is in bondage in Egypt. And to deliver them, God sends these plagues. And the last one is the death of the firstborn in every house. And only those who are under the blood, who had the blood of an unblemished pure lamb on the doorpost, would be passed over and delivered from judgment and death. So sin has to be dealt with by sacrifice, shedding of blood. There needed to be a substitute, and that sacrifice had to be unblemished and pure. You go on into Exodus. God gives the law to Moses at Sinai. All the details of the sacrificial system, which would be central in the way that Israel lived. Every special day, every feast, every act of worship, every approach to God, every day was on the basis of sacrificial offering. There will be no worship of God without sacrifice. And so God will provide a sacrifice to cover sin, a substitute unblemished and pure who could redeem his people and provide the kind of sacrifice that could open up the way of worship forever. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. And when he died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The sacrificial system was over because he was the final sacrifice. He created the only way to know and to worship God. And so the whole flow of the Old Testament, and there's so many other examples predicting, foreshadowing, pointing to Jesus coming, the need for the full and final sacrifice. And so when the Lord Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem, all of that is behind him. And the disciples thought they were going for Passover. They didn't realize that they were going with God's own Passover lamb. And Jesus was looking to Calvary and the suffering he would face before the glory to follow. And he was resolute. He was determined to do the work that the Father had given him to do. All in perfect time. All on the divine schedule. You know, even after his death and after he rose again. Do you remember he was on the road with two of disciples the road to Emmaus and you know they they struggled and they you know they were doubting and then he speaks them and he rebukes them and he says ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself it was all there later in that same chapter it says thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. 
You know, even in the, the New Testament and the proclamation of the early church, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 1 Peter 1.11, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, the glories that would follow. Those two things are vital. Suffering and then glory. Jesus came and he came to die and he knew exactly what he needed to do. And when he died on the cross, he suffered intentionally, deliberately, willingly. He knew that without that sacrifice, without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sin. He knew he was the Lamb of God. He knew that his death was the appointed sacrifice, the only means by which there could be reconciliation between a holy God and sinners. And friend, if you don't see that this morning, then you cannot understand the Lord Jesus. You cannot see the great theme of the Bible. And that's why it's tragic that even today, the Jewish people, they don't know what to do with Psalm 22. They don't know what to do with Isaiah 53. In fact, they, they just leave it out because they don't see that Messiah came to suffer and that Jesus is Messiah. You see, that was the plan, the plan set in place from before even time began. And then let's ask the question, well, what did the Savior predict? What did he predict? Well, he adds more detail through his own predictions. And it demonstrates his deity that he is God in human flesh. He knows that he'll be betrayed. He knows that he'll be condemned to death. He knows that he's going to be handed over and mocked and beaten and spat upon and scourged and crucified, but that he would rise again. Jesus is no ordinary man. Fully man and fully God, and he knew all the detail. And see that he calls himself, in verse 18, the Son of Man. It's the title that the Lord Jesus calls himself the most. He uses it around 80 times in the Gospels. It speaks about his humiliation, but also of the exaltation that will come from that. So what does he say? Well, he says he'll be betrayed, verse 18. He's going to be handed over by one who will turn on him. He'll be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes. It's interesting, the chief priests, they were, we call the aristocracy of the priestly line. They were the highest rank of all the priests and their position was inherited. It came through family line. The scribes, they got their status not because they inherited it, but knowledge through studying the law. So they're the lawyers. And so they interpret and explain the meaning of the law. So those two groups together are going to condemn Jesus to death because he exposed them. And he showed the false religious system. And so they'll set up a, a fake, a mock trial. They'll bring false charges. They'll pronounce death as a judgment. But due to the occupation of the Romans... They had no right to execute. They couldn't do it. And so they'd have to hand him over to the Gentile pagan authorities for that to happen. And so they would manipulate the charge to make it look like the Lord Jesus had been speaking against Caesar, against Rome. And as maybe you know, Pilate, who could find no wrong in the Lord Jesus, would send him to death on the cross because of the pressure and blackmail. You see, the Jewish authorities said that they would report Pilate to Caesar and that would end badly for him. And so Pilate the pagan condemned an innocent man to death, just as Jesus said. 
And then Jesus would be taken to a place called Fort Antonian. And there he'd be mocked. They'd put a reed in his hand. And they would ram a crown of thorns upon his head. They would spit at him and jeer at him. All, as he said, would happen. And then they scourged him. They lacerated his back with a whip which had leather strips with bone and metal at the end. And they whipped it so his back came apart. And they laughed at him. And they scorned him. And eventually they crucified him. All as he said. But then he would rise again in great triumph. Just as he said. You see he predicted all these things. He knew all these things. But what is so significant about our text is this. It gives us great insight into the sufferings of Jesus. How much would the Savior suffer? You see, as he shares these things with the disciples, as he teaches them, he indicates the extent of his sufferings in the details that he gives. Now, notice that the word is sufferings. It's important to see that the suffering that Jesus faced had many different elements. That's why the word is in the plural. Paul, when he writes in his letters, often spoke of the sufferings of Christ. Now, if we're believers this morning and if we're in any way familiar with the fact that Jesus went to the cross, the danger is we can fall into the trap of thinking that the suffering of Jesus is just in terms of the nails in his hands and feet and the crown of thorns, etc. Now, that is certainly one part of the, the horror and the trauma of the cross, the, the physical agony and pain, but there was much more to his suffering than that. And so I'd like to turn back, if you will, to Isaiah 53 just to highlight some of these things that the Lord Jesus brings out. And uh, one commentator brings out a number of these different elements which are in our text as well, and hopefully the two together will give us insight. And I want you to see that part of his suffering is the suffering of rejection and sorrow. Rejection and sorrow. Look at verses 2 to 3 of Isaiah 53. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Deep rejection, hatred, being despised, being with no dignity, knowing that people did not want him. They cried for his crucifixion. You know, this is the Son of God, the Lord of glory who faced these things. He knew that he would face these things. He knew that he would face this dreadful sorrow and rejection. And he'd not experienced any of this until his incarnation, until he came. And more, he didn't deserve any of this suffering. But he willingly faced it to save sinners like you and me. This suffering of rejection and sorrow. He was rejected by his own people. He came to his own and his own received him not. The chief priests and the scribes, they condemned him to death. He wept over Jerusalem. As he considered their rejection, they didn't want him. Those he loved, his own people, those that he had worked with and healed and taught, they rejected him. And the heartbreak is crushing. He would know the rejection of being betrayed by a friend. He identifies the painful rejection and disloyalty that he will face of one so close who would turn upon him. 
Think of Psalm 41.9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. One he loved, one he walked with and talked with, who said he was with him, all the care and trust of that, and then betrayed him. Overwhelming suffering when someone so close to you violates that intimacy and seeks to destroy you. The deep pain of rejection and being betrayed by a friend, one that you thought you could trust. And then they turn against you. And then the rejection and sorrow of being abandoned by his disciples. Matthew 26 speaks of how the disciples forsook him and fled. Even here as he teaches them in Matthew 20 of facing the, the suffering that he will. You know, he has the suffering of unsympathetic friends, the suffering that comes when you need somebody and they're not there. When you, you need somebody and they're not responsive, when they don't care about your pain because they're so involved in themselves and their own glory. The Lord Jesus had that with the disciples. He tells them these things and they're just interested in who's going to be the greatest. Rejection, disloyalty, great, great sorrow and suffering. But then also we see the suffering that Jesus faced of bearing sin and enjoying the wrath of God. Look at verses 4 to 5 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He carried the sin and sorrow of his people and in their place suffered the dreadful outpouring of being stricken, smitten, afflicted by God himself. He took the wrath and punishment of God against sin instead of his people and cried out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The spiritual suffering and the physical suffering combining together in the most excruciating hours of pain to make atonement, to redeem, to deliver. Wounded, bruised, enduring it all to accomplish peace for others to be in our place. And then the suffering of loneliness, look at verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him. He bore the sin of his people alone. There was none with him. And in that darkness of Calvary, a depth of loneliness and isolation not felt by any other. Loneliness. And then in verses 7 to 8, the suffering of innocence. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He didn't raise his voice against his accusers. He was silent. We cannot comprehend the suffering of knowing that you are innocent, that you are just, that you are holy, that you are pure, that you are without fault, and yet accepting the false judgment and death amongst the guilty. Our text says that they mocked him. The pagan soldiers mocked him. As we've said, they pulled at his beard. They rammed a crown of thorns on his head. They ridiculed him. They humiliated him. They nailed him to a cross before the whole world. And the lovely, glorious beautiful, sinless Son of God is humiliated. The one who should be exalted 
the one who should be fallen down before to worship, they humiliated him and he took it all inside. We cannot imagine the depth of sorrow. He deserved nothing of what he would face, and yet he went willingly to do what needed to be done. And the suffering of soul, look at verses 11 to 12 of Isaiah 53. The pain he felt in his soul, the pouring out of his soul unto death, being numbered with the transgressors, bearing the sins of many. The depth and extent of the suffering of the Lord Jesus is overwhelming. And that's why Isaiah 53 makes the point again and again and again using different expressions to try and show us something of how vast, how wide, how deep his sufferings would be. How deep the pain would be as he would be the full and final sacrifice for sinners. And the Lord Jesus has these things, dear friends, on his mind and on his heart as he pulls those disciples aside even then, he was suffering in knowing anticipation of what was to come. You know, you even see that pain of anticipation in the Garden of Gethsemane when the suffering and the intensity of anguish of his soul over these things shows itself as his body sweats drops of blood. And yet he set his face to Calvary. And though he knew all that he would face, he would accomplish this most incredible salvation for all who would ever trust in him. And you say, well, would it accomplish what he said it would accomplish? Did it actually do it? Well, of course, back in Matthew 20, verse 19, there is a triumphant end. The third day, he will rise again. The sufferings of Jesus wouldn't be the end. The cross was not the end. All those who think that Jesus is in the grave are wrong. He rose from the tomb. He burst out of that grave and he is alive forevermore. He has conquered death. He has triumphed over the enemy. He has overcome all suffering and we should rejoice in that this morning that our Savior is alive. That he said he would rise and he did. His work was proven to be accomplished, effective and done. All praise be to his name. And as the Lord finishes telling the disciples these remarkable things. What is their reaction? And with this we finish. They just focused on themselves, their greatness, their position in the kingdom. Do you know, they didn't ask him to tell them more about the cross. They didn't ask him to tell them more about salvation or about his work to save, about how he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They didn't even ask him about the resurrection. They didn't ask. You see, as one says, they wanted a king, but they missed that they needed the Savior. You know, people today, they don't mind talking about an inoffensive Jesus. They just don't want to hear of him as Savior. They don't want to hear of the Messiah who set his face to go to the cross to suffer and die to save sinners. But unless you understand that, what we're doing this morning makes no sense. Unless you understand that, Christianity makes no sense. This book, the Bible, makes no sense. Jesus makes no sense. Why did he come? He came to save. And to save, he had to suffer and he had to die. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, 
that he might bring us to God. If you're here this morning and you think that somehow you're going to be okay in the end without Jesus Christ, friend, I pray that you have been waken up from that delusion. There is no other way. He is God's provision, the sacrificial lamb. He is the just. He is the one who would die on the cross to deal with the sins of all who would ever trust in him, to bring us to God. Do you know what the wonderful thing is? The day came when the disciples really understood the amazing reality of it all. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and then they were cleared. And then they were bold and Peter stood up and preached that stunning message on the person of Jesus, the meaning of his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection. Then they understood. And I pray that you will too. I pray that the Holy Spirit would show you this morning that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you can. The Lord Jesus Christ is able to save even you this morning. If you turn from your sin and your rebellion, call on his name, trust him, trust this work that he said he was going to do is done, his death on the cross and that he rose again. And if you come to him and believe in him and trust in him and rest in him for your salvation, you can be forgiven. And through his saving work on the cross, you can be washed, you can be cleansed, you can be pardoned, and you can know peace with God, and you'll be given a new nature, you'll be given a, a new life to walk with God and know him, and to have everlasting life and hope. And I pray that you wouldn't just know about these things, but that you would know Christ for yourself, that you would know him, and with your heart and mind that you would believe that the sufferings of Christ were for you and that he has done all things well, that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And if you cry out to him, if you ask him, you turn from your sin and trust him, he will save you and he will keep you both now and forever. You see, this prediction was utter truth. And what he said he would do, he did. And we can believe him and trust him and know that he will never fail. And if you do believe him, you'll be able to sing with us now, bearing shame and scoffing rue, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Amen.